promise you, you'll always sound better than me. So <laughs> you sound fine. No, it's it's just that Matt Quas subject has some difficulty incorporating the mic into the ready to hand. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah, for him, it remains this alienated object. Though we are holding out hope that it becomes part of his uh, body schema and stays by his mouth. Handlichkeit, except with the mouth. What is that? Mundlichkeit. <laughs> well, uh, I'm I'm actually in a closet, so I'm not able to move too much anyway. All right. Why don't I run the intro, which is not something that we run. Hello, hello. Are we on? Okay, we're on. If you don't know what's going on here, this is the PillPod coming at you from Canada's downtown Toronto, your weekly critical theory and philosophy podcast. Today is Matt and I, but not only Matt and I, we're taking a break from your regularly scheduled phenomenology to discuss a YouTube channel, a book, and the voice behind them. That voice is, of course, that of the artist formerly known as Cuck Philosophy, now known as Jonas Cheka. <laughs> How's the pronunciation on that? Am I, am I close? That's pretty good, yeah. It's uh, Jonas Cheka. Jonas, okay, here to talk yeah. about Marx and Nietzsche. So welcome mm. here, Jonas. Thank you, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Do you have any clarification on the state of the name Cuck, CCK? What do you go by? What's off limits? Um, I'm, I pretty much uh, accept whatever name people call me. Um, so usually these days people say either CCK or they just say Jonas Cheka. Um, people are sort of getting used to just calling the name or calling the channel CCK Philosophy, uh, which doesn't stand for anything. But Well, the, the struggle will be real because Cuck Philosophy has become a household name in some households. So... We're definitely going to have to pivot here. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of like a really drastic decision um, to, to change my channel name at, at that point. Uh, but I just felt like if I'm going to release a book and, uh, and I'll have family members looking at it, I don't really want them to see cuck. <laughs> well, I should say your channel has actually been my go-to place uh, for... A lot of the books I purchased actually in the last three years, uh, since your favorite books, 2018, 2019, and 2020, uh, a healthy mm. number of them made their way to myself, uh, my shelf, nice. including um, Nancy Loves, March, Nietzsche, and Modernity. Uh, I really appreciated mm. that one suggestion. Yeah, you've read it? Yeah, it's excellent. Um, I mean, actually, yeah. she's contributing to a collection on Nietzsche uh, that I'm editing because I enjoyed the book so much. Mm. So, Yeah, I just kind of... Um... I think I just found it on Amazon, like, and I hadn't heard of the book or or her before, and yeah, it was extremely useful, like, while writing my own book because she, even though she, you know, her ultimate conclusion is that they're incompatible, um, she just lays out so many like similarities and and uh, yeah, overlaps between the two. So yeah, it was a pretty useful book. Absolutely. Uh, so actually, I just had a couple of questions uh, to kind of get us started. Uh, and I guess the number one uh, question I had is, uh, I started watching you back in 2018 when I was living in Mexico. Uh, and I'm not going to forget the moment. Uh, it's when I was on a treadmill uh, and I was really bored because, you know, that's the way it is. And I was mm -hmm. like, got to watch something entertaining. Uh, and I watched your video on Stephen Hicks, of all things, uh, uh -huh. uh, you know, taking down his book, analyzing his account of postmodernity. And I thought, 
geez, this is really refreshing. We need more people to do that. Uh, so actually, you mm. inspired me in part to start doing these kinds of takedowns of different conservative thinkers mm. that I do, including Hicks. But can you tell me a little bit about what inspired you to start this channel? Uh, was it just reading a lot of shitty conservative takes on left wing or major philosophers? Or was there some other motivation, some dark secret you're hiding from your audience? Um, actually, the... Um the sort of idea of taking down conservative takes or whatever, like that came pretty late. Mm -hmm. um, the original idea was to make more like the type of videos, like the Marxist analysis of Shrek. Um, <laughs> like what I was actually inspired at first is like the idea of applying serious theory to like really goofy pieces of like pop culture. Um, remember in particular, like, somehow I had found this paper that was a, a Marxist analysis of the movie uh, Mean Girls. <laughs> and and that seemed to me like something I, I want to do. So it was sort of just like originally almost like a joke, but also a joke that tries to be accurate on the theory. Um, and then like at the time I was like starting to read a lot of the like French post-structuralists um, and, and also that was the time when like Jordan Peterson, what was at his most popular mm -hmm. and, you know, just from my like beginners, uh, like level of understanding, I could see just how much Peterson misrepresents, um, these thinkers like Foucault and Derrida. Um, and, you know, I just saw more and more of, of, of that online and, and, uh, I don't know. I just felt like a strong urge to correct people. So I, I released the video like uh, on Jordan Peterson and postmodernism. Uh, and that was actually the first video of mine that got like really popular. I bet. Well, I'm going to wager to guess that a large portion of our listener base knows who you are as one of the most popular YouTube channels that does philosophy in video essay form. And I mean, I guess that would shift depending on how broad your definition of philosophy mm. is but it was sometimes sometime around here when i started mm. watching you that it was like f philosophy tube school of life and then lectures uh. that constituted <laughs> youtube philosophy and i think it's i think it's expanded since then quite yeah. a bit i've considered making like uh, a video about the school of life <laughs> um because i'm not a huge fan as you can guess yeah, Big Joel did one recently. I started following you when you had like 20,000 subs, and I thought for the first time, oh shit, there's an internet audience for philosophy with its difficulty, including its questions. And of course, we're all in this game. You cannot present philosophy without grossly oversimplifying some mm. aspect of it. That's just part of the medium if you want it of to course. be useful. Because ultimately, the purpose is that you can engage someone with something difficult. But I think when I first watched your channel, if you wanted to watch any Baudrillard video on YouTube, there was like one 8-bit philosophy thing that was pretty terrible, or mm. some lectures that are over an hour long, or your video, which is 10 minutes, here's the outline of the theorist, and 10 minutes, here's the application. So yours was the first time that I felt there was a balance between the difficulty and the application. You made me believe in internet philosophy, Jonas. I don't know if that's for nice. the better or for the worse, <laughs> but 
You bear some of the responsibility for us all sitting here. I'll, yeah, it's, it's something to be proud about. Um, but yeah, it just kind of shows uh, just how much people are actually interested in philosophy. Because, like, there's been so many, like, um, people like, like new atheists or, like, pop scientists claiming that, you know, philosophy is useless or dead or that it doesn't matter anymore. Um, but it's obvious that people, you know, still want philosophy or at least a substitute. Um, and but and Jonas, they're like, yeah. Didn't you hear Richard Dawkins? You know, the reason he says philosophy is dead is because he loves truth so much. You know, he truths so hard that he just can't help but say these things, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I loved, uh, have you seen that Richard Dawkins tweet where he was like, how can there be such a thing as continental philosophy? How can <laughs> philosophy be particular to a particular continent? Yeah, Asking well, the deep questions. A... That's We, we got we to gotta get to the bottom of this one, guys. Yeah, this yeah. was also a guy who was like, Kafka, how do people turn into bugs? Don't like it. Really weird. <laughs> Zero stars for the metamorphosis. Yeah. Right? I'm so. sorry to say it's absolute rubbish. It's impossible. Anyway, Jonas, I'm interested to know... Now that you've written a book, so you're you're now a multimedia artist. Mm -hmm. What is the uh, strength of the video essay medium, and and what with your YouTube channel humming along, what makes you decide one day, you know, I cannot do another video essay until this book gets written? How did that become the the next project for you? And just as an addendum, I was actually worried that your channel had gone, you know, into the ether. Because I was like, man, it's been a long time since he's actually published anything. I wonder if he's just moved on with his life. And then all of a sudden you were everywhere, you know, talking about the book, releasing videos, doing the q and I was like, oh, mm. so he was just writing this 260-page <laughs> opus uh, for our benefit. So it sounds like it was time well spent. Yeah. Um, well, like, it definitely wasn't, like, uh, pre-planned. It was actually just, I had, like... I, I had some like thoughts about writing a book before, but what really started it was that uh, someone who like personally knew the publisher uh, just emailed me and said, I, you know, if you're interested in writing a book, I could get you in touch with repeater books. Cool. Um, and I said, uh, you know, I'll think about it maybe. And they got me in touch and actually a year passed before I, I suddenly had the idea of like writing a book on Nietzsche. Um, and, and yeah, so it, it was actually like the offer came to me first. And then I just like spent a lot of time wondering what I could possibly write about. Um, and Nietzsche seemed like a natural like choice. Uh, first of all, because he's like a very controversial thinker and uh, you know, Everyone knows him, but everyone has different ideas about about him. Um, and also, you know, like he has influenced a lot of the post-structuralist stuff that I've talked about in my YouTube channel. So it seemed like a natural choice. And my initial idea was to write uh, just the kind of left wing perspective reading of Nietzsche. And I was going to just... Uh, talk about like leftists and socialists who've been inspired by Nietzsche and have written about him. And then as I've researched, I ended up like finding 
more and more interesting points of similarity specifically with Marx. So while I was working on the book, um, Marx sort of uh, became like the second half of the book. Yeah, and, and, and again, you know, Marx is also like someone everyone knows, uh, but is very, very often misrepresented. So it just seemed like a, a, a good topic to write a book about. Yeah, and I have to say, uh, I'm super jealous of this title. I'll get into like what the book's about because I have <laughs> yeah, some questions about it. That's a... But How to Philosophize with a Hammer and Sickle, Nietzsche and Marx of the 21st Century. I saw that and I was like, God damn. You know, it's like kind of the Beach Boys looking up at the Beatles and thinking like, <laughs> fuck, I'm never going to come up with a title as good as that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that because I actually like towards the end of writing the book, I, I was considering changing the title. Uh, but uh, my publisher encouraged me not to. So I'm glad I made the right decision. I don't uh, I don't think no matter how many possible worlds you have that there's a better name than this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah. So as one more initial question, we've had a lot of books on both Nietzsche and Marx. So what was mm. it that made you think we need one more book on these guys? And the thrust of the question is really, who's the audience? Who should pick this thing up? Um, my main goal was kind of similar to what I try to do with my videos, which is to keep it like accessible to non-experts while trying not to dumb it down. Right. Yeah. So like I, I wasn't like uh, writing like necessarily with other academics in mind. I I thought a lot about like uh, the lay people who will probably read it, and so I've tried to keep it accessible, um, and so that naturally led to like um, criticizing some very popular misrepresentations of Marx in particular, but Nietzsche also, and at the same time I've tried to like keep it interesting enough that people who already ha already are familiar with Marx and Nietzsche would you know still find it interesting to read because maybe my interpretation isn't like the most standard one uh so i've honestly i've kind of just tried to uh write for everyone i, I guess it's kind of like uh the spoke zarathustra it's a book for everyone and no one yeah or a book for free spirits is uh kind of what i was thinking uh. of when i was reading this right because uh, it's definitely yeah. a book that challenges a lot of our conceptions uh, well, just before we dive into the kind of substance of this and some of your other work, uh, I noticed uh, in the book you have a long section about academic philosophy, uh, including some pretty funny pot shots at analytic philosophers in particular. But you yeah. know, you describe academic philosophy as kind of a necessary enterprise, and it produces useful things in some cases. Mm -hmm. People like William Van Norman Quine uh, appears at yeah. various points in the book. But you say, you know, the problem with academic philosophy is oftentimes it's very dry extremely narrowly focused, uh, and it doesn't like to think about these kind of big pictures. I'm just putting it really simply, issues. Yeah, yeah. And develop, uh, as you call it sometimes, total critiques of society, including things like capital mm. and its global impact. So mm. can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, what's wrong, in your opinion, with academic philosophy, the kind of you know, program that sits there and says, if you want a career in this discipline, your job is to go read Schelling and then write an essay or a thesis on one of his books and try to carve out your narrow niche in the scholarship there. Yeah. So like if you look at precisely Marx and Nietzsche, they were both themselves, you know, very critical of, of academia and, and they weren't 
really academic thinkers. You know, Nietzsche uh, left university at an early age. Um, you know, Marx wrote a PhD, but then, you know, most of his career was not in academia. And it, it was because they didn't write just with other for other academics that they were able to reach such an influence. Right. And I think uh, one of the problems is that, you know, if you want to have a good academic career, you have to write for other academics, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one problem. And another problem, which is kind of, you know, I guess the problem of, of knowledge today in general is that it encourages increasing and in, like increasing specialization mm -hmm. to the point where, you know, every uh, particular person is focusing on such a small, you know, part of a particular subtopic um, that, you know, as you mentioned, it's kind of difficult to see the big picture. Um, and, and, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of this like general problem of, um, of knowledge we have where, you know, Baudrillard said that we have more and more information, but less and less meaning. And, uh, and, you know, everyone has to be such a specialist um, that it can be hard to see how all of these different specialties relate to each other and form something coherent. Um, I guess those would be like my main criticisms. And obviously it's not to say that uh, academia is useless or that it produces nothing, uh, nothing worthwhile. Um, but I think it's a problem that, you know, especially in the past few decades, um, academia has like, especially academic philosophy has been kind of like a self-enclosed bubble where not much comes out to influence, you know, the general culture. Um, and I think that's something that should be, you know, struggled against. Yeah, I remember uh, when I was uh, in grad school, I was told if you publish a paper in a pretty good journal that 100 people read and two comment on it, you're doing a pretty good job. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is when I was like 23, 24, whenever I was starting my PhD, forever ago, it seems. And a part mm -hmm. of me was like, boy, that's a pretty big pressure. It's got to be a good article. But I also thought like, man, that's a pretty narrow aspiration in life. So Two people yeah. will give enough of a shit about what I work on to comment on it. And that's going to be a milestone, Ugh, you know? Yeah, right. And compared like, you know, like compared with uh, someone like Hegel, who was like a celebrity, like people would literally pay for tickets to see lectures by Hegel. And <laughs> things have changed so much. Um, and I and I think it's a shame that, you know, there's there's this sentiment in 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 the general culture that you know, philosophy isn't significant anymore. And I think, uh, you know, to fight that, we have to kind of try to break out of the academic bubble and, and, uh, and, and also to try to, you know, make our philosophy be significant for non-academic matters, right? Because that's what Marx and Nietzsche tried to do. They, they, they learned from academia and then they tried to apply it you know, outside of academia to the most significant parts of human life. So, yeah. so you're a pretty popular figure in the internet kind of discourse of, of philosophy. Do you invest much time in it? Are you happy with where it's at? Do you think it can be improved? What can be improved? I'm interested in your, uh, your scope of the landscape. Um, just regarding like internet philosophy generally. Yeah. Us on Twitter. Um, 
Well, <laughs> Twitter is kind of a problem, you know. No, 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 like, <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry. Okay, Twitter was totally a joke, not Twitter per se. I just mean the fact that I think anyway, this conversation would have not taken place four years ago. There are YouTubers doing some kind of primary source philosophy. There are podcasts, uh, not just ours, but like Asset Ryzen doing actual readings. Twitter itself is a joke. Phil, you're wrong. Tw Twitter is where the greatest minds of our generation <laughs> okay. meet to exchange the deepest thoughts in the most profound media. I mean, besides <laughs> that, though. <laughs> yeah, lay, lay yeah. Well... I don't know. It's kind of hard to get an overview. I mean, like, I'm glad that there's been um, such a proliferation of Internet philosophy. I think that's something that should be welcomed. Um, obviously, sometimes the medium itself uh, can be a problem, and, uh, you know, especially on Twitter. I think uh, one problem with uh, Internet philosophy is that it uh, often encourages, like, very... I don't know, like division into groups where where every single question has to be uh, understood as like a conflict between two Internet subcultures. Um, but uh, but I don't know if that's just like a part of the Internet as a medium. Um, no, yeah, I, I, I think that's know. very yeah. true. I mean, um, I've written for a number of different magazines and I published one article that was like, Reasonably well received about like the IDW criticizing them, and I just got like loads of requests, including from the same publisher, being like more stuff on the IDW, more stuff on the IDW. And my response is like, well, first off, they've already said kind of what I wanted to about this, and second off, like there's really not much to say. I mean, their criticisms or comments are pretty brittle. So you point that mm. out, and that's more or less what you can do uh, if you don't want to like diagnose them culturally. Uh, yeah. But there really was this kind of pressure, you know, more of the same, more us versus mm. them kind of mentality. Have you experienced yeah. something similar? Well, people do kind of expect you to, yeah, kind of like uh, stay within a certain narrow circle of, of what you're exploring. So for example, uh, you know, I used to do videos mostly on postmodernism. Right. And then when I became, I sort of became more explicitly Marxist, um, there were a lot of really angry people like, you know, uh, like, oh, I sub to your channel because you were giving these, uh, you know, good explanations of postmodernism, and now you're doing this like political radicalism, and I want no part of it. There is that. Um, kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, but like, but at the same time, there is a kind of you know freedom to it that you wouldn't get in academia, because it's. In the uh, you know in the end it is me who decides what I'm gonna do a video about, um, and and the people who sort of you know, the people who support me on Patreon at least are pretty happy to endorse uh, you know whatever I want to talk about so long as it's interesting enough. Yeah, the crowdfunded model makes so much more content possible than would be otherwise for sure. Absolutely. So there's this quote in your book, just to push back on that a little bit, uh, mm -hmm. where you say, uh, we'll make William Willard uh, the enemy for today. The American mm -hmm. philosopher Willard Van Orman Quine, who is nevertheless an undoubtedly worthwhile philosopher, uh, and I agree, and everyone should read Two Dogmas of Empiricism, uh, encapsulated the academic will to truth when he said, and this is a quote from him, the student who majors in philosophy primarily for spiritual comfort 
is misguided and probably not a very good student anyway, since intellectual curiosity is not what moves him. Uh, and you respond by saying, behind Quine's denigration of, quote, spiritual comfort, which, despite its peculiar wording, is a reasonable thing to look for in philosophy, hides the fact that what Quine calls the good student also finds a form of comfort as spiritual comfort in academic philosophy. The comfort of satisfying the will to truth, writing from the perspective of no one, erasing oneself from the text, of becoming a non-individual in one's research. Right? And I think that's a great mm -hmm. critique of Quine. But isn't there a danger in looking to, let's just call it internet philosophy for a kind of spiritual comfort, uh, precisely because mm -hmm. the kind of intellectual standards Quine is putting forward can get watered down a little bit. Uh, you know, we were taking shots at School of Life, and I agree with that early on. But I mean, one of the things mm -hmm. that they put themselves forward as is as a kind of medium for comfort, ideas in their most digestible form. And I see a lot of that on the internet. So is this a danger, you think? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it kind of depends on what kind of comfort we're talking about. Because I do think that philosophy should be related to you know, human affects and, and uh, you know, the sort of, let's say, spiritual needs of human beings. Right. Um, and the thing about the school of life is it's not particularly good at even delivering that. Like, you know, with the school of life, I don't think the problem is that they're too focused on, like, just giving you something comfortable and that's it. I think... I don't think they're even able to deliver that because um, the kind of content they provide is something that you've heard a hundred times before. And, you know, it might give someone like uh, a philosopher's name to throw out to sound clever, but I don't think it's actually like, you know, a means by which to like struggle with your emotions or, or struggle spiritually. Um, and, and the people who do provide a certain kind of spiritual comfort, like maybe Nietzsche, you know, are, are thinkers that you have to kind of struggle through. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. I think that's so on point because, I mean, I got this beef with philosophers, quote unquote, who say, here's why you just should be fine compared to those who say, you don't feel fine. And here's part of the reason why. Mm -hmm. Or why not? I was just going to say, this is the problem I have with the channel is that, and other things like it, it gives you kind of the safest, most bourgeois, most coffee table interpretation of what are sometimes really dangerous, mm -hmm. radical, provocative thinkers uh, and says, you know, here's consolation. When really what exactly. was interesting about people like Kierkegaard or Marx or Nietzsche uh, is precisely that they demanded you pay more attention uh, to the problems in your life. Mm -hmm. You don't try to opiate them away, uh, but rather say, exactly. Jesus, you know, life is full of suffering and shit. I really have to think carefully about how I'm going to respond to that. Putting it yeah. Simple. Like my main problem with Quine was this idea that um, in philosophy, you have to basically become a non-individual where your personal concerns, you know, don't matter. And you have to kind of become this pure, you know, affectless subject. And I think that, you know, as I as I said in the book, that, you know, even the most analytic philosophers are still driven by something personal, are still driven by some kind of affect in their philosophical endeavors. Um, uh, and and I, th I think that, uh, 
yeah, pointing that out is important. Isn't Alain de, de Botton's book called The Constellation of Philosophy? Is it? I'm not sure. He's about. He's all about consoling. You know. The, oh yeah. The soul yeah. needs um, help. He does have a very soothing voice, though. <laughs> you know what I mean. Lacan a friend of mine. Made the point first that <laughs> we will always be misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, fuck it. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine actually read that book, um, and uh, you know, gave a kind of uh, overview of it for me. But, uh, you know, one thing in particular he mentioned was, uh, you know, just the very idea of, you know, reducing Nietzsche to like a figure of consolation um, is kind of a problem because, you know, maybe it ends in consolation, but, but at least at first Nietzsche should sort of make you uncomfortable a little bit. I, I, I'd have to like look back at the notes that he wrote for me. But um, it kind of goes back to that general thing that School of Life does, where it takes these, you know, like big thinkers and reduces them to these like platitudes, right. like everything has a purpose yeah. or, yeah, I don't know. We want, we want the yeah. popularization of philosophy in one sense, but not necessarily pop philosophy in this sense. Yeah. So speaking of the Nietzsche's, because there are multiple Nietzsche's and you've made your case for one but of course mm. we can't forget there's the sexist Nietzsche the proto-fascist Nietzsche and lately mm. we've seen this in current not just of school and life but also our daddy our Toronto daddy Jordan B. Peterson he's got this self-help Nietzsche that's tailored for the the young males with the Star Wars moral mm. architecture um, so I was wondering, what does your Nietzsche correct in this amalgam? Because it's going to be contentious, of course. Nietzsche is not a socialist. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you say you that read you wouldn't read on its face immediately that he's a socialist. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. I don't think he's a socialist. Just to make so it what? Do you, what are you trying to mix in here to, I guess, fix or defend or challenge those other interpretations? Uh, that's a big question. So. Uh, if you if you want a simpler version of the question, we could go back to um, when you said uh, you should struggle through something. What is the thing you think we should yeah. struggle through there with socialist Nietzsche? So there's kind of, you know, two aspects to it, which first of all concerns not trivializing Marx and then not trivializing Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. So, um, and... And what shouldn't be trivialized about both of them is the fact that they wanted a fundamentally transformed world, a fundamentally different form of human life. And what's happened with both of them is Marx has been kind of used not as that kind of figure, but as someone who just wants to kind of fix certain, you know, surface problems in our current world or uh, you know wants to make certain reforms and uh, and then you know Nietzsche has also been trivialized in that sense where you know his uh his desire to transform the world is you know say reduced to just like clean your room. an academic literary practice or something like that um and you know and also I don't claim to you know simply represent directly what Nietzsche believed because obviously he wasn't a socialist um, 
it was more so, you know, taking this Nietzschean drive to transform the world um, and looking at how that might be used by a socialist and, and, and how that might be applied to our current world, uh, you know, the world of global capital, and um, how we could use, you know, Nietzsche's existential goals and realize them in Marx's material goals. And, um, um, yeah, and, and also, like, Nietzsche kind of has this idea that the sense of a given entity is not given in itself, but is only produced by another entity sort of taking possession of it. Um, and that's obviously very true with readings of Nietzsche themselves. And I think every reading of Nietzsche is kind of like an example of one will to power taking over another one that is Nietzsche's works and kind of producing something new uh, from it. And this book is, is itself a case of that. And, um, and because of that, I think in chapter three, I talk about, you know, both the ways that Nazis have used Nietzsche, but then also the ways that uh, communists and socialists have used Nietzsche um, to sort of, you know, illustrate that point. And, and one of my interests is precisely, you know, the form that Nietzsche took when being utilized by radical thinkers. I should say, yeah, I think you're very successful at that. Uh, and I think one of the problems I have whenever I read secondary literature on Nietzsche or Marx, since I'm editing this collection on Nietzsche, I've read a lot of that now, is that their personality mm. kind of gets swallowed up by the gigantic personality of the Antichrist, right? And what's really mm. nice about your book is that your personality still shines through. Uh, if you want to put it in kind of Nietzschean terms, uh, there is a sense uh, where one will to power is confronting another will, uh, and it creates something productive and interesting from this dynamic. But you don't get mm -hmm. subsumed uh, by the kind of literature that you're working on, which is quite an accomplishment. Uh, I had a quick Thank question, you. though. So correct me if I'm wrong, because this was my interpretation of your book, as much of it as I've read so far, because I still, again, have 80 pages mm -hmm. left. Uh, and again, if you claim that you're an objectivist and you know tell everyone to clean their room <laughs> at the end, uh, and that was the secret lesson of this whole text. Forgive me, okay? <laughs> uh, but you know, I was a bit surprised when reading it because I thought that this was mostly going to be a book on Marx, uh, uh, Marx interpreting uh, Nietzsche through a Marxist lens. But what I noticed is that Nietzsche is really the primary character in the text, You know, the primary figure that you deal with. But what's interesting mm. about it is, of course, since you argue for a kind of Nietzschean socialism, that is violence, right? In the sense of doing violence mm. to Nietzsche's text. It's almost like you're trying to push Nietzsche towards Marx. Uh, so there is a kind mm -hmm. of dynamic tension between the two where Marx is almost the primary figure, uh, just kind of out there. Uh, and Nietzsche has to kind of be pushed towards him. Would you say that that's mm -hmm. an interesting or correct characterization of the book? Uh, or would you look at it a different way? I, I think that's fair. <laughs> um, because, you know, again, one of the points I make early on in the book is that... Um, any interpretation of a significant thinker has to be in some sense selective. <laughs> um, and whether you're reading Nietzsche as like a, a postmodernist or, or a reactionary or, you know, a, a radical, you'll always be selective towards certain parts of Nietzsche. I mean, there's, there's, there's just no other option. You have to be selective. 
and um, and Nietzsche himself, you know, in in Neke Homo, in his uh, last published book, he looked back at his own works and was selective towards them right. himself. What so, Nietzsche's selection process is in Neke Homo. Why I write such good books <laughs> yeah. and why I am so yeah, wise. Yeah, you have to be selective, but also you know proud and and confident. Uh, but yeah, because uh, to put it in kind of different terms, um, I tried to write this book not as a representation, but as an event. Right. Right. Because, you know, if you're trying to just purely represent, you know, without any impurities, what what a particular philosopher thought, the best you can come up with is just the perfect you know, copy of their own works. So like any interesting interpretation must be selective in, in some sense and also push a thinker into some Damn, direction. Damn, I hear that, man. And what I wanted to make sure to do is to make that explicit and conscious so that people don't feel like I'm kind of tricking them into accepting a certain version of Nietzsche, but I made clear from the beginning that like all philosophy this is a selective work it is driven by personal goals and affects i have and it is a kind of personal endeavor even though you know i i tried also as much as i can to let marx and nietzsche speak for themselves within that kind of uh, selection absolutely so this is kind of the heart uh of the book uh so we can take it in a few stages if you want. But for those of us, and I include myself in that category, who might be skeptical that Nietzsche has much in the way to offer socialists, what mm -hmm. does he have to offer socialists? Like, why do we need Nietzsche, or at least this very creative, radical interpretation of Nietzsche uh, that you're giving in the book? Yeah, I wanted to just add, our, our, our longtime listeners right, might remember a particular guest who went so far as to suggest that we shouldn't even read Nietzsche because the proto-fascist mm. seed is in there. And if you read it, it's going <laughs> to get into your heart and you know wrap its roots around it, and you're going to become a fascist. I'm only overstating yeah. a little bit, which is the sad part. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a spicy episode. I'll never, I'll never forget that. <laughs> Just like, you're wrong. <laughs> who was it? Uh, Ronald Beaner. Um, Ronnie, he's actually a good friend of mine. We meet for coffee every now and then, and he's contributing to the collection. But yeah, he does not like Nietzsche uh, at all. Um, mm. And we, he wrote a very good book. We didn't uh, all see eye to eye on on this interpretation. Yeah. Mm. If you want, uh, you might actually be interested. Um, his book is uh, "Dangerous Minds: uh, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and the Return of the Far Right." Um, and oh, actually, I've he has heard a, the name. Yeah, he has a similar kind of background to you, where he says, you know. Fascinated by Nietzsche early on, really kind of electrified by his thinking, um, but they kind of turned against him uh, later on when he saw how he was influencing some of these other people. But yeah, yeah. that reminds me a bit of um, um, an academic by the name of Jeff Waite, mm -hmm. who wrote a book called Nietzsche's Corpse. I don't know if you've heard of it. I've heard of it. Um, I haven't read it. Yeah, it, it, it kind of has this similar idea where... Um, Nietzsche for him is almost like this infectious force that turns people who otherwise might be communists into like uh, secret reactionaries. 
<laughs> well, we do have to get these yeah. reactionaries under control, like Bataille, Deleuze, yeah. Derrida. Yeah. You know, they're just, uh, they're going out. They're saying whatever they want out there, you know? But one thing that I have noticed um, while writing this book is that um, as, as Marxism has been, in my view, in various ways, uh, distorted and weakened and trivialized, it is often precisely those parts of him that link him to Nietzsche that have been kind of removed from Marxism. Um, so I'm thinking, for example, of uh, the critique of morality, right. uh, to an extent, the critique of, of nationalism. Uh, you know, Nietzsche even critiques things like wage labor and the state um, in his own particular way. Um, and, and I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that there's something, there's a kind of radical spirit to Nietzsche um, that again comes from his desire to, you know, negate the modern world for the sake of something new that he shares with Marx. And I think that's something that should be upheld in Marx. Um, so I, I talk about stuff like that. And then also when it comes to Nietzsche's critiques of socialism, what I notice is that, you know, funnily enough, a lot of the critiques Nietzsche makes about socialism, Marx made himself. Yeah. So for example, I, I should say, I think that's the most convincing part of the book uh, where I learned the most actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, for example, in the 1844 manuscripts, uh, Marx criticized what he calls crude communism. And uh, the things he says about it is, for example, that it is actually uh, disguised envy and greed, that it reduces, uh, it, you know, minimizes the world of art and culture, um, that, it's, that it is a kind of leveling down, right? All of the things precisely that Nietzsche criticized in socialism. Um, and, you know, we can also talk about, you know, uh, the socialist figures that Nietzsche was familiar with, but the foremost representative of socialism for Nietzsche was Eugen Düring, um, who, who was an anti-Marxist and also an anti-Semite. And Marx and Engels themselves, you know, hated him <laughs> and kind of uh, poked fun at him for uh, for still believing that he has like discovered a universal and absolute uh, moral system, and uh, and you know, uh, Engels wrote literally wrote a book called Anti During, almost like you know Antichrist, um, <laughs> and and excerpts uh, of that book um, were then published as Socialism Utopian and Scientific and became one of the most, you know, significant, uh, popular texts of like classical Marxism. So yeah, that's a pretty significant thing that Nietzsche's criticisms of socialism are, you know, worth listening to and should be taken seriously because in many ways they overlap with Marx's own and kind of, they might teach us how to prevent our own understandings of socialism from becoming something uh, something, you know, trivial or, 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 you know, or weak. Yeah, absolutely. And I should say, again, I think that that's the most, for me, 
interesting part of the book. Uh, and I will mm-hmm. say uh, to those of our listeners who know my opinions on this, you did make me budge on that, right? I think okay, I did think to myself, mm. okay, this is a valid point and I do need to consider it. Uh, and I'll get back to you with what my final thoughts are. But let's come at it from a different direction. So we've talked a little bit about what Nietzsche gives to Marx, in your opinion, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So what then does Marx offer Nietzsche? Uh, and I'm thinking here that there are any number of Marx's figures. I think probably Frederick Jameson has uh, engaged in with them in the most deep and interesting way in the political unconscious, who say, you know, Nietzsche has some insights, uh, but he lacks a lot of good stuff. Let's just put it that way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, of course, from a Marxist perspective, he lacks a sustained critique of the capitalist political economy. Uh, you can find gestures mm-hmm. of criticism towards, you know, bourgeois moralism. And as you point out, routinely in the book, you know, there are comments about the kind of decadent quality uh, to affluence concentrating the capitalist class, but there's nothing comparable to capital. Uh, so mm-hmm. what would Marx then have to teach Nietzsche if, you know, they were taking turns, you know, educating one another? Yeah, so one of Nietzsche's biggest strengths is also his biggest weakness, which is that um, he was in a certain way disconnected from from his society, right? Because, you know, at an early age, he left university. He was a very solitary figure. Um, he, uh, yeah, he lived the rest of his life off his, you know, university pension. And, and one thing that that allowed him to do is perform a kind of total critique of the society, which he was looking at almost as if, you know, from afar, um, because he, he didn't have to be an academic. He didn't have to be a work. He didn't have to be a worker. He didn't have to be, you know, a, a businessman. And that kind of allowed him to be equally critical of all of those aspects of our society. And that was one of his strengths. But at the same time, because he lacked grounding, in in you know in the particular social formations of modernity he he wasn't particularly good at providing kind of uh, the material point of view the materialist point of view um you know the materialist materialist ideas about what would you know transform this world um and uh, as i mentioned in the book you know early on when he still, you know, hadn't isolated himself, he made various critiques of bourgeois society, including its economy, including wage labor. Um, and, and then, you know, he, he began talking about this stuff less and less, the more isolated he became. And that was kind of a missing piece from his philosophy. And, uh, and, you know, obviously that's something Marx provides in, um, in Daybreak, Nietzsche actually, you know, talks about how dehumanizing wage labor is and and he suggests as a solution that, you know, all these wage workers should simply engage in mass emigration um, and that would somehow, you know, solve their condition. I think that shows that Nietzsche saw the problems with the forms of production and just social formations in general of bourgeois society but at the same time because he kind of lacked grounding in it um 
he lacked material ideas about how to change it. Um, so that's the part I think that that, Mar uh, that Marx uh, brings to the table. If we are going to take a cue from social forms of morality or tables of values, then mm -hmm. Christianity, liberalism, and socialism are all moral systems that really just allow losers to get ahead for, for, for Nietzsche. And Nietzsche doesn't really take any pains to separate them one from another. So if we commit to your reading, then how do we reconcile the individual with the collective? Mm -hmm. um, so there's several aspects to that. And one part of Nietzsche's critique is asceticism. And, you know, he often critiqued uh, socialism as being ascetic. And that actually made a lot of sense because there were a lot of um, socialist groups at the time who were kind of, you know, influenced by religious thought and believed that socialism involves like being more ascetic, uh, denying your needs, uh, denying your individuality for the sake of the collective good. And Marx's vision was completely anti-ascetic. Um, you know, Marx has this idea that the proliferation of your own desires is actually a good thing. That, that we should proliferate our desires and needs because that is what makes us richer as people. Um, and he, you know, in a lot of places made clear that the, the kind of society that, that, uh, that he wants is, is not one where individuals deny themselves for the sake of the collective good, but where individuals realize themselves precisely through collective forms of life. Um, and, you know, and, and sort of, you know, there's almost, there's, there's an individualist aspect to Marx where, you know, everything that somehow, uh, that blocks my development as an individual should be destroyed. So, you know, Marx isn't so much a, a, a collectivist, uh, you know, in the sense of being opposed to individualism. He's someone who wants to transcend the very, you know, strict distinction between individual and collective. And there's even, you know, parts in Nietzsche where that almost seems to be happening. Um, for example, the first time uh, Nietzsche ever uses the term will to power, he actually isn't talking about an individual will to power, but he is talking about the will to power of different peoples. So there is that strain in Nietzsche. Um, and then an another, you know, uh, part of Marx that is kind of Nietzschean um, is this idea of, of empowerment that, you know, the proletariat isn't like good because it is meek. Uh, you know, it's not, the proletariat shouldn't strive to be sort of the weak person um, who is therefore morally good, but the proletariat is precisely both de dehumanized, but in a certain sense empowered in bourgeois society. And that empowerment should be, you know, pushed to its extreme. And then, and then there is also, yeah, the, for example, uh, one interesting thing I noticed was um, 
Nietzsche uses a, a French word to describe certain elements of the herd, which is cane, I think it is. Um, and Marx, uh, in a letter, uses that precise word and said the proletariat must not be, you know, cane, uh, but must, you know, be strong and autonomous and powerful, basically. And um, so there's that emphasis on empowerment. Um, there's the emphasis on anti-asceticism, the proliferation of needs. Um, there, there's probably more. Maybe that'll, yeah, we'll, yeah. I'll remember that. I That's a great answer. I, I can tell you've written a book on this. <laughs> yeah, oh, thank I mean, you. it's very <laughs> thank comprehensive. You. And I should say, I think you're absolutely right that people often misunderstand Marxism as advocating for a kind of deflationary socialism where we all move back to mm -hmm. basically the world of Avatar, you know, from the James Cameron movie. Exactly. You know, we all yeah. hold hands and we sit in front of a tree and we decide to give up, uh, you know, technology for the sake of a kind of more primitive uh, or at least more naturalistic existence. And he was very opposed mm -hmm. to that as a kind of good modern yeah. thinker. And as with Nietzsche as well, this is a completely imbecilic response that Nietzsche wanted to return to the old world order. Nietzsche wants to go back and rewind the clock and live in, in ancient Sparta. No, no, the f no. Though, I've never even thought that Nietzsche was responding to particular groups of socialists that he was watching. I've, that never even occurred to me before, so that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. I'll let you yeah, the book when I'm done. Uh, I should be finished by tomorrow, Phil, so when I see you. <laughs> uh, um, go ahead. For example... Uh... Yeah, like one important, like interesting thing to point out is that um, the socialists that Nietzsche was most familiar with were all anti-Semites. So, <laughs> for example, uh, you know, obviously he was familiar with Wagner, who early on was a kind of revolutionary. He was anti-Semitic. Wagner was arguably influenced by Proudhon, who was also anti-Semitic. And then, as I mentioned, the foremost representative of socialism for Nietzsche was Dering, who was also anti-Semitic. Um, and, you know, Nietzsche famously said a lot of, you know, he, he hated anti-Semites. So it's, it's almost likely that in his mind, uh, socialism and anti-Semitism was to some extent, you know, equated. Yeah. And again, I think that's, a very interesting part of the book, particularly the talk discussions about Dering uh, and Nietzsche's parallel criticisms uh, of Dering socialism, uh, along with Engels, uh, which is also a good mm -hmm. book, I should say. But I, I had a yeah. kind of different criticism uh, or comment. The one thing I thought that your book maybe could have done a bit more of, and I say this with love because I kind of wanted this, uh, is mm -hmm. you indicate that you're not really going to be dealing with the religious dimensions of modernization secularization, uh, the criticism mm -hmm. of Christianity. There are references to it in the book, but it's not foregrounded. Uh, and I'm wondering why you, do, you chose to do that, because for somebody like me, modernity has to be understood in terms of liberalization, the spread of capitalism, and also secularization. Uh, and also because Nietzsche tied a lot of his criticisms of egalitarian movements to a critique of Christianity, uh, both its metaphysics mm -hmm. and its morality. Uh, he had this kind of famous statement uh, where he said, socialism is the residue of Christianity and Rousseau in a de-Christianized world, which is right. a fascinating you know, kind of explanation. Uh, and I've kind of used this to myself to criticize people like Jordan Peterson to say, look, you know, 
if you're really looking for contemporary Christians, uh, a lot of them might look a lot like the woke people uh, out there advocating for more equality, more inclusion, uh, more leveling uh, of domineering social hierarchies. Uh, so this kind of take uh, is wrong. Right? So how would you respond mm. to something like that? And what do you think, Nietzsche, what, how do you think we could extend your book to an analysis uh, of religion? So the reason I didn't write a lot about religion, um, because obviously both Nietzsche and Marx um, criticized religion and, and Christianity in particular, um, part of it was just because in our culture in the past one or two decades, critiques of religion have been, you know, done by these self-congratulatory new atheists right, 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 whose, right. whose critiques of religion are like, you know, only skin deep and don't actually touch, you know, the, the fundamentals of our society. And I didn't want to give into that kind of uh, self-congratulatory new atheism. But um, I, I completely can empathize with that, by the way. Like, yeah, I think that's yeah. say no more. I think that's a good explanation, you know, mm -hmm. but also but also because actually focusing on, you know, focusing on religion is important, but it can also be misleading in that it can sometimes lead people to miss, you know, the kind of the, the essence of the critique. So, for example, Nietzsche, of course, criticized Christianity, but at the same time, he said that certain secular thinkers in our age are not Christian, or at least, you know, not explicitly Christian, but they end up reproducing the negative forms of Christianity, right? That they end up reproducing the, you know, the slave morality of Christianity or the will to truth. And that, you know, it's, it's that point that can be missed if you focus too much on religion. Because, you know, religion is kind of a, a social phenomenon. And being a social phenomenon, it can be in various forms reproduced in secular form. So I wanted to, you know, uh, there's a short section in the book where I kind of talk about why I don't... I mentioned why I don't talk that much about religion in the book, um, and 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 that is because um, I don't want to I don't want people to kind of focus on the wrong thing because I think that in Nietzsche's view, Christianity at least in its explicit form could be eradicated and yet its negative social effects could still persist in society. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that you very rightly point out that. Um... What's innovative about his commentary is he doesn't just launch what we could call logical or epistemological critiques of Christian metaphysics because he's aware of the fact that mm. most people don't believe in God because they sat down and, you know, read St. Anselm's ontological proof of God's exactly. existence, right? It yeah. serves a social function, so you need to get at that and understand it historically, uh, which I think is yeah. really important to stress, right? And, and speaking of historically... I'm going to throw you just the broadest question, and you're going to have to figure out how to how to whittle it down. I know you have your your fourth okay. chapters on uh, historical philosophy and philosophical history, and we've just been yeah. name dropping as we're prone to do: Schopenhauer, Hegel, Marx, Nietzsche, postmodernism. And I was wondering how mm -hmm. 
specifically, I would I would call their forms of history different, but they're both against a certain other kind of historicism. You have Nietzsche, who's kind of an ecstatic, existentialist historicist, versus Marx, who's a materialist historicist. How do you mm. uh, how do you compare their their views of history and maybe fit it into the rest of the stuff that we've been uh, yammering on about? Could you ask a bigger question? <laughs> well, that's why I said he's going to have to whittle it down. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm interested in the history question. One thing I think that's particularly worth mentioning is that uh, uh, Marx is often interpreted and, and often is, you know, a, lo a lot of Marxists read Marx as a teleo teleological thinker where, and also a determinist thinker where through a, you know, there's a, a particular progression to history that you have to pass through and that it inevitably leads towards a certain goal. Um, and Nietzsche is, is well known as a, as a critic of teleological history. Nietzsche emphasizes the contingent, you know, ruptures, uh, the arbitrary aspects of history. Uh, but Marx also actually criticizes teleology. Um, he, there's one, uh, I think in the German ideology, he says that this idea that history moves towards a telos is only a kind of uh, idea that is only produced after the fact and kind of artificially applied to past history. It's not something that, uh, that exists as, as an inherent part of history itself. And, and Marx, uh, you know, emphasize that, that it is particular individuals and the social formations that they create that moves history forward. It's not anything like spirit. Um, and there's no kind of de-individualized form of historical progression. And he even, um, he congratulated Darwin for, in, um, I think he said uh, that Darwin destroyed teleology in the, right. bi in the biological sciences, and, and he praised him for that. No, absolutely. And Marx is well known for his, Marx, Nietzsche is well known for his genealogical analysis of history. Uh, and mm -hmm. Marx is well known for his dialectical or historically dialectical account of history. Uh, I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but can you tell us a little bit about what differentiates these two ways of analyzing history philosophically and what brings them together? Since you spent a lot of time kind of mincing this difficult theoretical question in your book, and I think it is mm -hmm. important for us to understand some of these theoretical subtleties. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I'm wondering if you can also differentiate for us the particular misconception of history as a series of particular events towards a given end compared to what I see as their common trait, which is between the two having history as the appearance and disappearance of values. So one thing that uh, that brings them together. Actually, I could tie this back um, to what you mentioned about Marxism not being a kind of return to nature, um, you know, a return to primitive communism. Um, I think there's a kind of similar structure to Nietzsche and Marx, uh, where it, just as it's important to emphasize that Marx doesn't want to return to primitive communism, 
Nietzsche doesn't actually want to return to master morality because, you know, this is a common misconception uh, that, you know, he wants to return to master morality, where in fact, uh, master morality, you know, even though it was affirmative, it was still kind of like dumb in a sense. It was almost like an animal kind of existence. Uh, and yeah, you think of Achilles just stomping around, you know, near Troy, being like, "I'm the biggest yeah. <laughs> and the baddest, and I'm gonna kill you all." Right? You know, it's like Hector, get your ass out here. Exactly. The you know, it's like slave morality. Uh, as much as Nietzsche critiques it, it actually sort of deepens human life, makes it more interesting. It makes individuals more interesting. And he says that uh, great human beings actually have a mix of slave morality and master morality. So <clears throat> the kind of historical, the, the, the part of their historical uh, philosophy that I'm, I'm pointing to here is, is a dialectical term that they both used, which is Selbstaufhebung, uh, which is kind of like self-sublation. Um, and Nietzsche is often read as an anti-dialectical thinker, but there is at least this dialectical aspect to the way he views history. And that is that, uh, uh, you know, that certain historical formations end in a kind of negation of the negation, where, you know, slave morality negates mas uh, master morality, but then that, that negation, the negation of slave morality in turn, isn't a mere reversal but a kind of sublation of the two. So what Nietzsche, I think, is pointing to in the Ubermensch is a kind of mix that takes right. both the positive from master morality and the positive from slave morality. Just as for Marx, you know, in a certain sense, uh, communism returns to primitive communism in the sense of common property, but it, it, is, it is like... Um, a completely, you know, ad advanced stage because it contains within itself the entire history of bourgeois society and utilizes the forces of production that bourgeois society has produced. Um, so there's that broad, yeah, that's the broad historical uh, similarity that, that these two thinkers have. Um, I think it's important to emphasize that the end goal is not just a simple reversal. Um, and, and that's a simplification that I think has done a lot of harm. That's so true. And it's done the harm to both of them. Yeah. And this is the kind of dumb oversimplification that is not, you don't just find this in internet philosophy, but you also find this in ac accepted academic readings of Nietzsche. Exactly. Specifically in political philosophy. Like, look, if you think that you've suddenly discovered an interpretation that ends with you being really smart and with mm. Nietzsche and Marx being totally <laughs> ignorant of the ongoing dialectic of values. Yeah. And not even dialectic, but the accident of values from history, then sorry, the problem is probably with your interpretation. <laughs> but you're doing the good sort of violence, in my opinion. You're doing the good sort of violence to the text, which is to say, I don't care what you thought you meant. Here is the correct hermeneutic. And this is the kind of reading that I find respectable. Yeah, and I should say, uh, 
my favorite video of yours uh, is actually a fairly recent one of yours. Uh, I did enjoy the Doom one, by the way, because killing Margaret Thatcher uh, as a demon does sound <laughs> fun. Uh, but yeah. it's actually uh, about Kentaro Miero's uh, Berserk, uh, which is a favorite mm-hmm. uh, anime of mine. Uh, and it, mm-hmm. he wrote characters really successfully that seem to embody this Nietzschean ethos and the sense of being kind of Achilles-like, you know, strong and powerful mm-hmm. and life-affirming. But they did have the kind of soul of a Christ-like figure in the sense that they were reflective, deep ask themselves whether they were doing the right thing uh exactly. they weren't just war like kind of dummies to use your terminology and shout out to our our bible people out there but nietzsche thought it was an affront to put the new testament of the bible next to the old testament of the bible because the new testament is a bunch of pussies whereas the old testament is king david who is on one hand the warrior and then on the other hand the poet yeah, because like if you like look just, you know, at first glance, if you look at Guts, you know, the main character. Yeah, it's kind of uh, about, he's like he, Achilles on steroids, right? He's got the fucking yeah. massive manga sword that like heaves yeah. through knights like they're nothing. Yeah, like at first he, it might seem like the most stereotypical action hero possible. Like this huge muscular guy with a huge sword and he slays demons and enjoys it and he loves being covered in blood. And I do enjoy it. But I'm then, not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> of course. But then like what really makes his character special is when you go deeper into the story and you find underneath it all that he has like trauma and 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 psychological needs and and ambitions and yeah, so it's that kind of uh precisely i i never actually thought of this uh, thought of it this way but he's kind of like a combination of master and slave morality where he's kind of like affirmative but without being you know dumbed down to a kind of like muscle bound freak you know and so is griffith for that matter uh, even though i hate him uh, yeah which reminds me uh, any of our listeners if you like berserk uh 1990s tv show is all on youtube now so dm me if you're interested nice always talk about it uh but I had, okay, just to kind of move in the direction of wrapping up, uh, one of the mm-hmm. key sections of your book uh, is probably called a Nietzschean socialism, uh, which I imagine, I think at least, is what's going to give you the most flack. Can you give us a quick mm-hmm. introduction to what a Nietzschean socialism would look like? So we've done a criticism, we've analyzed some of their criticisms, their methods, their historical analyses. What's the cash payoff, to use a vulgar term, from this in terms of Nietzschean socialism? Yeah, and and have mm. you gotten any shit for it yet, or is that there, still yes, to come? Good question. Good follow. Up. Um, actually, not uh, not that much. I mean, uh, I saw on Goodreads there were two people who gave me one star. That probably have something to do with that. <laughs> uh, and uh, and there's been like you know a couple people who have kind of you know scoffed at this idea that you're going to use Nietzsche for socialism, but no extended critique. Which obviously I welcome. I'd be interested to hear more extended critiques. Um, we'll get Jordan Peterson on the line. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Hopefully he can he'll uh, read my book. Um, but so, you know, there's parts of Nietzsche and socialism I've already touched on, which is that um, it's a form of empowerment and the proliferation of needs, the proliferation of art and culture rather than, you know, denying yourself for the sake of the collective good. Um, It's also, as we've mentioned, um, 
a self-sublation rather than a mere reversal that it, it's it's not just primitive communism and and also uh another way to look at this is that uh uh you know in in bourgeois society you have this struggle between the worker and the capitalist and often uh, the way that marxism is understood as is as a reversal of those two terms where uh, you know the worker becomes the absolute side of society rather than the capitalist but again it's actually a sublation where for marx the worker as such doesn't really exist uh, in socialism you just have human beings who who produce but they're not wage laborers they're not there to you know feed the mechanisms of capital yeah you have a funny quote by lenin that i'd never heard of but it really did make me laugh even if i have problems with lenin yeah. which is like uh, at some point in the 1920s, you saw a slogan, uh, one day, you know, the workers and the peasants will rule eternally. And he says, this yeah. is the problem because what we want is a society where there will be no workers and peasants, right? The whole purpose exactly. of our enterprise is that the worker liberates himself from being a worker or herself. Uh, and so does the peasant, right? Yeah, exactly. Like uh, he says that uh, if if the worker and peasant rule forever, then we'll never have socialism. Because socialism means the abolition of classes. Um, and then this goes back to like what I said in the very beginning, which that, you know, a Nietzschean socialism would be a fundamental negation of, of you know, these fundamental aspects of bourgeois society like wage labor and capital. And that would also include uh, the overcoming of bourgeois forms of morality, which I think would be superseded uh, you know, increasingly at least superseded in a socialist society. I'd like to ask you about one of Nietzsche's particular escapes from the bourgeois day-to-day, -day, one of the worst value tables, the last man's value table. But, mm -hmm. but for him, art and aesthetics offers an escape into knowledge or into a better form of knowledge. So where might aesthetics appear in Nietzschean socialism? Um, I actually have, towards the end of the book, um, I have a section on aesthetics. Um, I've also written a short article on uh, aesthetics in Marx and Nietzsche. Um, and, you know, as, as you mentioned, art is a very important thing for Nietzsche. Uh, Marx is often seen as a kind of non-aesthetic thinker. Um, but in the 1844 manuscripts, he actually connects human production to aesthetics um, and says that there's actually an aesthetic aspect to human production. Um, he actually says that uh, humans produce also according to the laws of beauty. And um, I, I'll answer the question by going to a distinction that uh, was made by Kant, which is the distinction between art and craft. And Kant says that art is done for its own sake. Craft uh, is not pleasurable in itself, but is only done for an external reward such as pay. So the way that we can understand uh, Marx's idea of socialism in an aesthetic sense is precisely as the abolition of the distinction between art and craft, where you know, art can be useful and useful production can be artistic. I don't know if that answers your question, but um, it's this, you know, it's, uh, the, you know, there is an idea of the 
aestheticization of human life in Marx, even if it's, if it's kind of, you know, hidden. No, I, I totally did not have a, a correct answer in mind. I was just wondering where you situated that, considering the fact that we're all content creators. Yeah, so, yeah, actually, I just wanted to wrap up uh, in our traditional way. Sorry to be boring, but uh, you've done an awful lot over the last couple of years. And again, uh, your new book is How to Philosophize with the Hammer and Sickle, Nietzsche and Marx of the 21st Century, uh, with repeated books. Uh, you can find it. At mm -hmm. any number of fine retailers, uh, good holiday reading if you want to spend your time thinking about resolutionary agitation in between eggnog. But what's next? It's an it event, is. and it's uh, an event linked in the description also. It will shall be. Um, what would you say is next for you, um, both in terms of your video essays, uh, and do you think you have another book coming? Uh, and I guess I will make a pitch on behalf of Victor Brazzone, uh, another member of our pill pod. Uh, who isn't here, uh, where you challenge uh, John Rawls at various different points in the book. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Mm -hmm. Don't make him do, do you that. Describe it as? Uh, so <laughs> my, my pitch for you on behalf of uh, people like myself and Victor would be uh, something on uh, Rawls uh, and why it is that you think this kind of left liberalism is bad, because I'd be interested in seeing that. But anyway. Have you, by any chance, have you read uh, Philosophy and Real Politics by Raymond Goyce? I haven't, no. I recommend that highly because uh, I, I am, I'm influenced a lot by his approach uh, where he critiques ethics first, political philosophy. Right. Um, and he has a critique of Rawls there that, that I agree with. And I, I, I think uh, you're, you're influenced by Rawls, right? Yeah. I mean, I call myself kind of a, a Rawlsian democratic socialist, but I completely mm. agree that he has a impoverished theory of power if there is a theory of power in his work at all so it needs to be complicated yeah. a lot with a lot to kind of get it going politically but i um, do like the kind of account of justice in the book uh-huh um it, it's pretty f yeah i think you would find that book interesting and I, I i love it when raymond goyce says um that uh the absence um of power in john rawls philosophy is not a beauty mark but a cancerous tumor. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, well Victor, when, when you listen to this episode, you know, uh, don't be too pissed off. <laughs> All right. So uh, I'd like to end it with a, the gen most general question possible. You're a content creator in both book media, uh, video essay media. I have some general questions, mostly because I'm struggling with them and we've been kind of batting them back and forth. Our ideas political if they're just opinions that you have on the internet is the process of a book worth it and how do you see like the worth of making content when it just submits into this weird marketplace of egos and ideas and and things like that hmm. do ideas matter there's my the sum up of the question well i guess my answer would be that not not all ideas are created equal um and and there's no there's not really a way to know beforehand which ideas will become significant, um, because you know that's always throughout history has seemed kind of almost arbitrary which ideas win out, um, but you know as Marx said, philosophy itself becomes a material force when it grips the masses, so I think it's kind of a question of influence. Um, if ideas become influential enough to make to you know 
influence changes in the way people <laughs> act and what they strive for, then yeah, absolutely, they do matter. But then that's an important part is that you you try to present your ideas in a way that they would actually have an influence on the world. All right. This has been <laughs> the Pill Pod. Uh, it's Matt and I interviewing Giannis Chica of CCK. There's no you. CCK Philosophy <laughs> on YouTube. Um, it looks like you're returning to YouTube. How's that been? Has it been better to have these like frequent releases where you get your little rush instead of spending a year and a half on a book? Yeah, it's. It, I really enjoy it. Like I, you know, some people thought I would, you know, quit my YouTube channel, but I, I don't have any plans to do that. Um, my the my favorite part of just like, you know, I guess what would be called content creation, is being able to see that immediate feedback um, yeah. and looking at the comments and looking all at all the ways in which my content has produced various ideas in people and seeing discussions you know kickstarted by my video it's it's a great feeling and it's it's nice to have that you know at a you know at a quicker rate and you know that certainly would never happen at an academic conference <laughs> the last place I'll get feedback. All right. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jonas. Matt, I will talk to you guys soon. Peace, dudes. Thank you.